The rest of you, I want to invite you <laughs> to turn to James chapter 2 as we continue our series in the book of James. That is enthusiasm. I like it. I like it. That's right. It's advertising for city kids, right? Now, your kid is going to have a lot of fun. Uh, James chapter 2, I invite you to turn to James chapter 2 as we continue our series through the book of James. Um, you all know me. You all know at this point um, I'm kind of nerdy. Uh, I like to read weird articles. Chris Bailey was like, how did you read an article about nuclear submarines the other week? I was like, I don't know, I just did. Um, I ran across an article. I love to study words and the origin of words. I find that fascinating. And so I ran across the study about the differences between um, words used in America versus words used in England. They're the same word, but they mean two different things, right? So, for example, uh, I watched on television yesterday what the uh, Brits would call a game of football, right? There was, uh, there was 11 on 11, right? One team trying to score against the other team, but they used a round ball, right? That's kind of got you know, octagonal patterns on it. And uh, they kicked it, right? Hence the name football, right? Because they're kicking the ball with their foot, yeah? We would call it soccer, right? When we say football, we're talking about the pigskin and the colts, right? But they're talking about um, the round ball and Wayne Rooney, for example. Uh, yeah, I love me some soccer, church. I just going to have to handle that. Uh, when you hear the word blinker, you think of what? You think of the turn signal on your car, right? And if you're anything like me, there's a lot of people running around town who must be low on blinker fluid because they just don't know how to use them. I said that to somebody one day, and she, bless her heart, she was like, I don't know that I've ever changed the blinker fluid in my car. It's like, <laughs> if you find it, let me know. I'll be happy to change it for you. But in England, um, it's equipment that's used on a horse, right? It is horse tack. Um, that's what a blinker is. Uh, a boot is like something that I'm wearing, right? Right? I'm wearing a pair of boots. But in England, it's a, the trunk of your car. Uh, last one, uh, I grew up, my dad to this day calls his younger brother dummy, right? Like he'll answer the phone, hey, dummy, how you doing? And it's a term of endearment. But typically, when we call somebody dummy, uh, we're giving them a statement on what we think of their intelligence, right? We're saying they're not the brightest bulb. Uh, but in England, they use that same word to describe what we would call a pacifier, right? So they stick a dummy in their baby's face. Like, that just sounds really weird, right? But that's what they do. Um, if you've been around Dustin and Nancy, they don't have pacifiers. They have swords. Um, so they stick a sword in their baby's mouth. I don't know which one's worse, sticking a dummy in your baby's face or a sword. But anyway, uh, in our text this morning, what we're going to find is there are some words that are being used uh, that we maybe ascribe different understandings to those words. Uh, James and Paul, as you'll see, use these same words interchangeably and differently. Uh, and it's important for us to uh, know what these words mean and how they're being used. And <laughs> I was talking to a, a guy a, a while back. And he was saying, you know, it's really important as people are coming to your church from different backgrounds that you don't use those big, um, you know, $4 words or $20 words or however much, I don't know how you assign monetary value to words. But anyway, don't use the big words, right? You know, dumb it down. And so he was saying, like, don't use words like justification and propitiation and sanctification and all the other Asians, right? Um, 
But it's important because they're words that are in the text. So we're going to use those words. We're going to talk about what they mean and what they don't mean. And you may think that you immediately know what some of those words mean if you've been in the life of the church. But it's important for us to take time to understand and define these words based on the author's intent, his language, and the context that we find the words in. And so if you have made your way to James chapter 2, I want to invite you to stand in the reading of God's word. We're going to pick back up in verse 18. I know we went 18 and 19 last week. We're going to pick back up, though, in verse 18 and read on down through the end of James chapter 2. James, continuing his argument that faith without works is dead, says the following. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to, to read it and to study it. And uh, Lord, as one of our core values is that we value your word. We value the scriptures. God, as we do so, God, may we not do that only in, uh, with our lips, but God, with our actions, as James instructs us here. Help us to see clearly and to understand um, the interaction and the work of faith and the interaction and the work of, well, work, Lord. Um, Father, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of your people. God, that we would leave this place differently than we have come into it because we've encountered and spent time with you. If there's anyone here that does not know you as their Savior, God, I pray that this would be that morning. If there are those here, God, who are walking but struggling, I pray that they would be encouraged and challenged. If there are those that are walking in sin, I pray they would be convicted and repent. But regardless of where we find ourselves this morning, speak to your people, not for our sake, but that you might be glorified in and through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a See, uh, I want us uh, to back up. We did 18 and 19 last week, but as I said at the beginning, I want to back up just a little bit. And James is going to uh, respond to the possibility of a, a critic, right? So um, anybody in here, you ever take a speech class? Do you ever have to do like a persuasive speech in speech class? One of the things that they'll tell you in a persuasive speech is to anticipate the opposing argument, right? And go ahead and answer questions that you think will likely be asked. And so James does this, right? He's, he's putting forth an argument that um, your faith must be accompanied by works. And then he says, now there's some of you, there's some of you who would say to me that you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And so he's going to attack two arguments um, that would be proposed against him. The first is the, uh, is the issue of convenience. The 
primary driver and motivator, uh, as, as we read in this text, and we'll see again in a few moments, is the idea of kind of checking off that spiritual box. Those who want to cling to faith and reject works altogether are doing so for a variety of reasons. But if I had to boil them down to one, it's really convenience, right? It's the ability to assuage your conscience, to say, I have faith, I have been saved, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, I went to VBS and raised my hand at the end, I was at a revival and I, and I, and I raised my hand and, and you've walked away and you've wandered away from the faith, you have no desire for the things of God, you don't have the desire for the people of God or the word of God, you, there's nothing about your life that would indicate that you are a follower of Jesus. And to that, James says, I don't think that your conversion was legitimate. But in our culture, that seems really unkind, right? Who are you to tell me that I'm not a Christian? What, to that, a friend. Someone who genuinely loves and cares for you. Because what you're clinging to is what I grew up hearing called fire insurance. You heard a scary sermon about hell and we're like, well, if the other alternative is heaven, I'd rather go to heaven than to hell, so let's do that number. What, what, what are the three steps I need to take? I'll take those three steps, check them off, and uh, now I'm good. Now I can go and do whatever I want to do. And Paul writes in Romans 6, and he rejects that idea in verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then, brothers? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul says the same thing that James says. Look, if you're genuinely a follower of Jesus, you're dead to these things. So walk in life. Walk in the manner in which Christ has called you to walk. And Paul and James would both say, listen, if you're not walking and pursuing the things of God, then how can you claim to be a follower of his? And I'm convinced that the more and more people that I interact with and spend time with, the more and more people that are observers of Jesus, but not followers of Jesus, who maybe culturally have nodded their heads and said, yeah, okay, I'm good with that, and, and I would rather go to heaven than hell, and so there we are. Which takes us to James's second pushback, right? He anticipates the argument of convenience, of, hey, I've got faith. I don't need to do anything beyond that, right? You know, you've heard Paul. Paul says, uh, by grace through faith, so I've got faith. I'm good to go. Secondly, he pushes back culturally, right? Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, this is cultural because um, that phrase, that statement, you believe that God is one, is a reference back to the Shema, which was a, a Jewish prayer that was said by every Jew three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And, and really, it's much longer than that, but for our purposes and according to James's reference, we'll just look at that verse there. It's a reference back into their culture. He's writing to a Jewish audience who would have recited those words. They wouldn't hear James 2 verse 19 and not immediately go right back to the words that they probably had just said 
just a few hours prior to that. They knew the right answers, right? They knew when to stand and when to sit and what part of the service do we pass out the offering plates and when is it appropriate for me to raise my hand or to not raise my hand and when do I say amen and when do I not say amen? They knew all of those things, right? They, could, they would smoke you in Bible drill, right? You guys remember Bible drill where you would have the Bible and you, they would hold it out in front of you like this and then they would say, all right, Everybody turn to James chapter 2, and everybody would, we'd see who could do it the fastest, which looking back on it is kind of strange. But anyway, uh, they would just beat us all at that, right? I feel like there's a cell phone commercial in there, right? You know, like, open your app and flip to James chapter 2. Who can do it the fastest? How Bible Drill Has Changed in the 21st Century. It's my next book. It would be my first book. But anyway, uh, culturally, church, they knew the right answers. And we live in Avon, in our context, the majority of the people around us can tell you the right answers. They they can tell you the churchy things that you are asking them about. You can respond and answer and give the culturally religious Christian answers. But James says that's not the point. And he, 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 he puts them on blast, so to speak, in the sense that he says, even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So I ran across a phrase this week that I thought was really puzzling, demonic theology. This was not a study of demons and spiritual warfare, but demons' understanding of God. And church, they know who Jesus is. They know who Jesus is on a level that you and I don't know, right? They see things that we don't see and understand things in ways that we don't understand them. And they know who he is, but they have rejected him. And so James says, listen, some of you all are clinging to your faith, right? You're saying that you've done this. You've prayed the prayer, so to speak. But there are no actions that follow that. And so I don't know that you actually, I, in fact, he says, I don't, you're not saved. And he says, and then there's some of you who you're smart and you know all the right answers and you're a good Jewish kid and you've been raised in the synagogue and you pray the Shema three times every day and you confess and repent and do all these things, but you're not following him. Even the demons believe and know what you claim to know, but they've rejected God. And so, Church, you may be sitting here this morning and you might know all of the right answers. But if you've not actually placed your faith in Christ and chosen to follow him by his grace, you're not saved. And there may be somebody in this room that you prayed a prayer when you were eight years old or five years old or whatever the case may be. But you look back on your life and there is no fruit, no desire to follow him. And the only reason that you're here this morning is because you have to be for some reason. And to that, James would say, I don't know that you're saved. There's a fine line that I'm walking here because I don't want to create doubt where there should not be doubt. But church, we're called to follow him, not just to watch and observe him. 
So then James continues on, verse 20, he says, Do you want to be shown, (laughs) you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James kind of, you you almost get the picture, and he just thrown up his hands and fine. Do you, you want to see some evidence? Do you want some proof? You want to see how this looks with flesh on it? Okay, fine. And he's going to give us uh, a righteous sighting. He's going to point to us two people, and they could not be more different, right? You have Abraham, the founder of their faith, right? When they talk about their forefathers, they're talking about Abraham. But remember, Abraham was a pagan man that God gloriously called, gave purpose to. He saved him. And his faith is put to the test. And then the other person is a pagan Gentile prostitute. A woman. So you've got founder of the faith, pagan prostitute. And James uses both of them to demonstrate the righteousness of God. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So there's three words that are used in this text. I think it's important for us to understand what they mean and how they're being used because a lot of people um, will take James in this particular set of verses and they'll juxtapose it with Paul and they'll say, see, there's contradictions all in the Bible and now I can, I can, I can, I can reject it and, and do whatever it is I want to do. The problem with that is the Bible and the fact that it doesn't actually contradict itself at all. Um, So let's look at, first of all, this word justification. It's used in verse 21 and several other places throughout this passage. When Paul uses this word in Romans 3, Paul is speaking of um, being declared righteous by God through faith. That's what he means when he says justification, that we are justified, declared righteous by God through faith at a moment in time. When James uses this word in this passage, he's speaking about the fact that our works demonstrate that someone has been justified. To declare someone righteous because that person's works give evidence of true and saving faith. Um, Paul speaks this very thing in Galatians 2 uh, verse 16. Jesus speaks in this same manner in Matthew 12 verses 33 through 37. And so people will say that Paul and James are using this word. They're very different. They're contradicting one another. Um, And I want us to look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 together, 8 through 10 together, okay? So if you've got your Bible with you, uh, I think the words, are they going to be on the screen, Andrew? Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, are they on the screen? No? All right. So everybody turn your Bible. This is your Bible. It is what you say you are. Turn to Ephesians 2 or open your app and... Scan there, however you do that. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Now notice, Paul is going to ruin the argument that he and James are in opposition to one another. Now many of you will have heard Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and could probably quote it. But let's, let's read it together. 
For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And so the people who are saying James and Paul are in opposition are going, yep, see? Let's keep reading. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. And the people in opposition are going, "Uh uh-huh, see, right here, opposition. They're, They're contradicting one another so that no one may boast. Now, again, this is why it's so important to read context. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, Paul and James are both in support of, in favor of works as a demonstration of or as a result of saving faith. Paul's argument basically goes, look, you're saved by faith through the grace and mercy of God and it has nothing to do with you. All you bring to the table is sin. But the result of that salvation is works which he prepared beforehand for you to walk in. James is saying, listen, you're justified by your works. Your works are evidence that that took place. So they're not in opposition to one another. They're actually very much in support of one another. Verse 22, we see the concept of faith being described here. You see that? Faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So faith is active, and that's frankly pretty self-explanatory, except that for so many of us, it's not actually lived out, right? We say that we have faith, but for so many of us, it's 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 a blind faith or it's a distant faith. You've heard the illustration about the chair, right? I can say that I have faith in this chair all day long, but unless I'm willing to sit in it, then I haven't actually got faith in it. But I I can sit in it and know that it will hold me up. So we're called to have an active faith. In the life of Abraham, we've seen him take more and more active steps of faith, culminating in some ways in this offering of his son Isaac that John was reading about earlier, the child of promise. He was, his faith enabled him by God's grace to trust the giver of the gift more than the gift itself. He loved the giver of the gift. He loved God more than the gift that God had given him. And church, for many of us in this room, we have that entirely backwards. We love the gifts that he has given us far more than we love him. And the way you can see that in your heart is when those gifts are taken away, what is your response to God? For so many of us, it's it's anger, frustration. And I'm not saying, church, that when we lose those gifts, when we lose someone that's close to us, someone that we love dearly, that we don't have questions, that we don't, we're not sad. Whether it's Job Someone else in God's word, Eli in the book of 1 Samuel, I was reading this week. He said, listen, all of these things that I have been given are from him, and so whatever he wants to do with them, they're his to do with. Our faith is called to be active, and it's perfected or completed 
what James is talking about there is that it's maturing, it's growing, it's demonstrated through fruit, that we don't just claim to have faith, but we can look back on our lives and see evidence of that faith lived out. Church, I would double dog dare you. I'm teaching Josie what double dog dares are, right? We had a double dog dare involving some asparagus. Uh, no, uh, what was it we had a double dog dare about? When the asparagus. It was Brussels sprouts. Yeah, I won. You can congratulate me later. Pretty awesome. But I double dog dare you this afternoon or sometime in the next couple of days to sit down and to look back on your life and to look and see, are there, is there evidence of faith in my life? Where I, I, have, I can see where I, I took steps because I knew this was what God was calling me to do even though I did not have all of the answers or, or where I, I rejected something that just everybody in the world told me this was what I should be doing, but I knew that the Lord told me to do something else and so I pursued Him over the acceptance of others. And fill in the blank. There's all sorts of avenues and aspects and if you don't know how to do that, like call a brother or sister in Christ in your context of your city group. Say, I need help processing that. But you're... Faith is made mature. It's active. And then verse 23, this word righteousness appears, or this concept of righteousness appears. And primarily, Scripture speaks of righteousness in two ways. One is positional righteousness, right? It's the moment at which you're saved gloriously. You go from death to life. You go from a child of Satan to child of the king. You Go from a spiritual orphan to adopted by God the Father. And that's positional righteousness, right? It's, it's over. It's taken place. It's done. Then there's practical righteousness, and that's speaking of how it is we live for God. This is speaking of the result of our positional righteousness. We demonstrate and grow in Christ's likeness. Those who are counted as righteous in Christ practically manifest their righteousness in their lives as they grow in their likeness of Christ. So that's positional and practical. Ligon Duncan, uh, I think, summarizes these couple of verses exceptionally well. He says, you see, it's not that Abraham was made righteous by doing the work of sacrificing Isaac. It's not that Abraham was made righteous by joining his faith to the work of offering Isaac. It is that Abraham had been declared to be righteous by God, by faith, and that he had been shown to be, proven to be, demonstrated to be, vindicated as a man after God's own heart, as a friend of God, as a believer of God, by acting on that faith. So church, all that James is saying in the example of Abraham for the moment, is simply that he claimed to follow God and God chose to save him. And because of his faith in God and because of his positional righteousness, it resulted in practical righteousness. It resulted in his faith being active. And therefore, there were works that gave evidence to his salvation. Church, there, there ought to be works give evidence to your salvation. And, and it, again, as I said at the beginning, it, it, it might make sense that 
James would go to Abraham, right? He's writing to a Jewish audience. This is the founder of your faith. He's the, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? I mean, that might make sense why he would go to Abraham. And then he throws in Rahab, to which the majority of people might have been like, ah, Rahab, really? Okay. So we said a moment ago, Rahab is a, is a Gentile. She's a pagan prostitute. In verse 25, he says, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, to give us a little bit of context this morning, I want to read from Joshua 2, verses 8 through 11, just to kind of summarize the scene that, that James is referring back to. It says, Before the men lay down, she, being Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. John MacArthur notes, he says, Rahab demonstrated the reality of her saving faith when at great personal risk she protected the messengers of God. So just three quick things about Rahab. She Notice, first of all, her condition. She's a woman who was defiled, She's a woman who's dead. She's dead in her sins, dead in her trespasses, just like you were prior to your salvation in Christ. And she was doomed, right? Both physically and spiritually. The city's going to fall, so physically she's doomed because when the city falls, she will fall. And spiritually, if she continues in the way in which she's going, she's going to enter into a Christless eternity. She's going to go to hell. So she's defiled, she's dead, she's doomed. It's not looking good for Rahab. But then notice her confession. In verse 10, she confesses the might of God. That the one true and living God is mighty and greater than any and all others. She describes in verse 11 the majesty of God. And then in verses 12 and 13, she clings to the mercy of God. Genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God, but presses on to take refuge in God. So it would be one thing if Rahab had just said, yeah, I guess your God is the biggest and the baddest of them all. But she doesn't just say that, but she clings to that. She pursues that. She seeks refuge in that. She's willing to forsake everything else, right? Everything she's ever been taught, everything she's ever grown up around, everything she's ever heard, all her friends, all the city, everything to pursue God. Now, it's easy for us to read that and kind of be like, well, based on the alternatives. Nobody else in that city is doing that. And you and I may think it's really easy to leave behind friends and family and countrymen and city and everything you've ever been taught, everything you've ever known. But all of those things compared with the one true and living God are nothing. 
As we sang earlier, right? Counted all as loss. Paul says, looking on his history, on his past, and all the things that might have been or could have been, because you know Paul, Paul was upwardly mobile, right? He was, he was on his way to being um, somebody really wealthy and important and influential and all of these things. And I'm sure on occasion that the thought crossed his mind about what could have been or people would have asked him, you know, why would you leave that behind? And Paul says, I count all of those things as loss compared to knowing him. Church, can you say that? Can you count everything in your life as loss in comparison to knowing him? There's some easy things that you could tick off the list, right? Like, my job, yeah, I could count that as loss. (laughs) Really, I could count that as loss, Lord, so if you want to provide something else, I'm all right with that. My my home, you know, I I like this house. There's nothing wrong with it, but I watched HGTV the other day, and I I could move on from that house and be just fine. It's Memorial Day weekend. Some of you are going to spend a lot of time with family. You'd be like, yeah, I could see parts of my family being counted as lost and been all right with that. What about your spouse, your kids? What are those things that you cling so tightly to? I think of the, we were FaceTiming with my mom, I think, the other day. She's, the beauty of technology, right? Like, the idea of being able to do this when I was a kid, I would have thought, like, it's, that's like Star Trek, right? You can't actually do this. But she's walking around with this little piece of plastic in her hand, and through the wonders of AT&T, um, is showing us her farm, right? We're getting to see the baby goats and the chickens and all this stuff. We're getting to talk to Grammy and all that. And the thought occurred to me as, as we're doing all this, and I can't, and I, I was telling mom and dad last time we saw him, I was like, you know, there's a lot of farmland out in Danville if you want to move out to Danville. The thought occurred to me about the number of uh, missionaries and pastors and generations not that long ago, right, when they hugged necks of mom, dad, brother, sister, cousins, nieces, nephews, they counted it all as loss. They would never see them again this side of heaven. How many of us, how many of us are willing to count it all as loss? Or are there certain things that we're like, I'll count everything as loss except for these two, three, four, ten things. And then notice Rahab's contribution. She is continually an encouragement for Israel. She's grafted into the lineage of Israel. Jesus, right? So again, much like with Ruth, God doesn't just take a foreigner, a pagan outsider and say, okay, you can come in, but just kind of stay on the fringes, but brings them all the way in and grafts them into the lineage of the Messiah. Well, she's grafted in and she remains an encouragement for the nation of Israel for the church even in James's day and and frankly she's a, a testament and an example of faith in our day and so literally thousands of years later she is still ministering to the body she stands as an example of God's grace 
God's mercy. She, there's nothing warranted. She did nothing to earn that. She's a recipient of his grace. And she's an example for us. What it looks like to not simply say that we believe, but to put actions behind that belief, understanding that if things for Rahab didn't go a certain way, it would end really badly for her. I can't even allow myself to think about Abraham walking up that hill with his son and the things that must be going through his mind. I mean, I literally, like, I, I, I was thinking about that as I'm studying, and I had to, like, go and do something else because I just couldn't, like, mentally, I just didn't want to go there. To think about what it would be like to, to take your son, whom you love, up that hill. And then I look at my own life, and I think, how cheap, how stingy can I be with my faith and that there are just certain little things that I think, I just don't know that I want to do that, God. I don't know that I, I want to give that up, right? I don't think I should give that up because I don't want to give that up. Because we're called to follow him in whatever that means. And then James concludes our passage in verse 26, confronting us with uh, our present reality. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So to summarize this passage of scripture, this idea of faith and works and how these things come together, Notice with me that Christ is the basis of our justification. As I said a few moments ago, you bring nothing to the table but sin. Nothing. You don't put God in your debt. You don't somehow do enough right things that make it so that God wants you on his team or however you want to phrase that. It is Christ and Christ alone. As we sang moments ago, it is Christ and Christ alone that is the basis of our justification. Secondly, faith is the means of our justification. So it's by placing our faith in Him, not placing our faith in our works, not placing our faith in our heritage or our culture, not placing our faith in anything but Christ and the work that He has done on our behalf on the cross of Calvary. It is by faith. And here's the thing, right? We all have faith in a variety of things. I think Bill and I were talking this week about a guy that he knows that's um, agnostic or an atheist. And we were talking about the fact that ultimately, even the atheist has faith. He has faith or she has faith that this world started, this universe started from nothing and somehow spontaneously came to be. And I'm oversimplifying that. I understand it. But at the end of the day, there's faith. Now, I also have faith. I just have faith that there is a creator God who's eternally existed. So Christ is the basis of our justification. Faith is the means by which our justification is seen or earned or not earned, but demonstrated. And works are the evidence of that justification. So Christ, Christ is the basis We earn nothing. We don't deserve it. 
only reason we can be justified is because what he has done on our behalf. Faith is the means by which we place our faith in what he has done. And then works give evidence of the fact that what we say happened has actually happened. Church, there, there ought to be works accompanying your faith. I told you all a couple weeks ago, you know, like 97.6% of statistics are made up. I don't remember what the statistic is. I know it's astronomically high of the number of Christians who will walk into the church week after week after week. They know their Bible drill. They go through all the motions and will never lead one person to faith in Christ in their entire life. Not one. Never disciple a single person. who will never demonstrate through their life, through their actions, that what they claim to be true is true of them. And church, what I am pleading for you to do is not to do things to earn God's favor, right? It's not as though if Chris Bailey goes out this week and shares the gospel with 150 people that somehow all of a sudden now God must, like, with the... With the a ray of goodness bless Chris's life in some way that all of a sudden it's very evident that Chris must be doing what you know God wants him to because now look at him. His wallet is fat, his waist is not, and his wife loves him so deeply. That's, that's, not, what, that's not what that looks like, right? It is an overflow. It is a result of our relationship with God. So what it ought to look like is if Chris shares the gospel with 100 people, it's just simply because he loves Jesus and he can't wait to tell people about it. Um, one of the privileges of being a student pastor for 10 years is I get to see a lot of students get engaged, right? We still we got a wedding invitation the other day. We can't wait to go and, and see another one of our kids married off. And you know what happens? We call this silly grin syndrome. Like the, the first several weeks after that ring is put on the finger, they just both walk around with silly grins on their face all the time. You say hello to them and they just start giggling because they're just so happy with life. And they can't wait to tell everybody, right? Did you see my ring? Guys don't typically lead with that, right? Partially because we don't have a ring and partially because it'd just be weird. Did you see my ring? Do you know I'm getting engaged? Do you know I'm getting married? You know, you have, you have kids, right? I am absolutely that dad. I used to walk around like pictures of Josie on my phone. Like I don't now, right? I got like 800 pictures and probably 795 of them are Josie. <laughs> but like, would you like to see a picture of our daughter? You want to see her? Isn't she awesome? Isn't she cute? Look at her. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm just so excited. Okay, you want to get like like even more basic? 2012, Josie's born. We're at home. It's our first daddy-daughter moment together that I can, like, crystal clear remember. UK's playing Kansas in the championship game. And I'm holding my sweet baby girl as UK goes to victory, wins a national championship. 
Church, I told everybody and their brother about UK winning the national championship, right? I was live tweeting it. I was Facebook posting it. I was all kinds of fired up about it. We get excited over the dumbest stuff, right? Look at your social media feed if you don't believe me, right? Like, we could get excited about the dumbest stuff. Look at my tacos from lunch. Aren't they awesome? And yet, for some reason, church, we're not nearly that excited about our Savior, right? I'm fired up about a Gordita Supreme, but I'm not excited about my Savior? No, I'm not, I'm, I'm, please hear me. I am not, I'm not Jesus juking the moment. I'm very sincere about this. How is it possible that we could spend day after day reading the words of God and praying and singing praises to him and spending time around other believers and seeing God's glory manifest around us in nature or in relationships or with friends and not be excited about who we is we claim to serve? about who has saved How is it possible that we can do that? So I'm not calling you to, to add, I'm not trying to place burden upon you. I'm trying to liberate you from burden to say, listen, pursue Jesus. And if you'll pursue him, what will naturally be the result is works that glorify him. The idea of you working to earn his favor is counterproductive. All that is is more stones in the bag that you carry. The idea of just enjoying him and out of your enjoyment, glorifying him with your works is freedom. You know, as John was saying this morning, like you, you can't think about Memorial Day and I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't think about Memorial Day and not think about the sacrifice of Christ. In the same way in which men and women have died to purchase my freedom as an American, Christ has died to purchase my freedom as a person, spiritually. Galatians 5, right? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So church, don't walk out of here with your shoulders hunched like, okay, i got to come up with some things to do because if I don't, then maybe I'm not saved Pursue Jesus. If you will pursue him, works will naturally flow out of that pursuit. So to that extent, let me pray for you, if I may. Father, we love you. And God, we say that week after week, and, and, and I say that week after week. And, and Lord, I, I pray that we say that with sincerity. <laughs> But Father, I, I pray that if we say that and we mean that and we're sincere, that Lord, there would be actions that accompany that. That God, we would not come to the end of our lives, whether it be today or 50 years from today or 150 years from today. We would not come to the end of our days and look back and see just almost no fruit. God, I think of the, of the blackberry bushes at, at mom and dad's house and how at times like I have to move aside the branches and lift leaves and only to find one or two little berries to put in the bucket. God, I think of other bushes where I, I, can't, I can't hardly contain all of the berries. They're everywhere. 
Lord, I don't want at the end of my days for you to look at me and to have to pry and search and look to find a couple of fruits. But God, I pray that my life would be fruitful. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that for City View Church. And God, not that we might be glorified in that, not that we might earn some special dispensation or favor from you, but, but Lord, simply out of an overflow of what you're doing in our life, that you might be glorified in and through us, that we might be a people who, if we're known for nothing else, may we be known for a desire to put you above all things. May we pursue you. And God, if this is to take place, it will be your grace that accomplishes that. Because we confess that we can't do this. Our hearts are wicked. We desire really silly things. So, Father, by your grace, I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see those things which really matter. You would help us to see our lives for what they are and not what we wish they were. And God, we would not leave here feeling burdened, but God, leave here feeling set free. Knowing that we have been set free by Christ. Thank you. Thank you for your kindness and mercy. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Church, as always, I want to encourage you to respond in these next few moments. You can stand and, as Josie would say, praise the Lord with your hands up. You can remain seated in an attitude of prayer. If I can pray for you or you need to speak with me, I'll be here at the front. But I would encourage you not to sit, but simply mouth words. Praise God, repent, pray, respond.